Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Retrotube Obscurios, exploring the weirder and wilder end of archive television with some random I've dragged in off the street. Heather is away polishing her cats, so this episode I'm joined by a real American. Feel the production value. <laughs> Joining me from sunny Hollywood, it's screenwriter, filmmaker and podcaster Evelyn Mars. Hello Evelyn, how the devil are you? Hello. Well, you make me sound so fancy. You are fancy. <laughs> well, I, I fancy that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very honoured. You are in the podcasting world from um, the Devil's Work podcast. I keep wanting to call it the Devil's Hands podcast, but it's not that. It's not the hands, it's the work. It's we do the, the work. work. Uh, the, the catchphrase of the Devil's Work podcast is, we watch the most horrifying movies we can find so that you don't have to. Although we encourage it. <laughs> I liked the episodes on Nope and uh, Man Bites Dog, particularly. Those are a couple of my favorites, also. Um, yeah, just, it's not specifically horror, because we've dipped into thrillers quite a bit, but it's just, I think the general rule of thumb is uh, any film that makes you feel very bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some quite extreme stuff that you do, isn't there? Yes, yes, we've kind of gotten into some, There's there are some recurring themes that involve... Well, I don't even. I things I can't even say uh, that we say <laughs> on the on the podcast about you know different kinds of torture and murder that keep popping up again and again. This is why I've chosen these particular things to talk to you about. Oh yes, it makes sense. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you're not just any old random American. You do actually have some experience of old British TV and old media generally, don't you? I suppose so. Yes, I would say I'm a bit of a an anglophile and i like a lot of old media and just anything that's odd odd is best when i first met you you were a big buster keaton aficionado yes bordering on obsessive i would say yes that was one of the things over time i would that's generally my nature is i, I have become obsessed with several different things but buster keaton and also harold lloyd uh, not so much Charlie Chaplin. I was always a Harold Lloyd fellow. I think mainly because they were shown on telly when I was little. He's very winsome, I would say. Uh, he definitely adapted better to the change to sound films went better for him than it did for Buster Keaton, which is kind of a shame because I don't think that's Buster's fault. He was just mishandled by the studios. Didn't you say it was partly his accent that didn't help? Well, yeah, he had sort of this very southern down home accent uh kind of an oddly deep voice for the the delicate pale thing that he was or seemingly yeah. he was quite strong uh quite an athlete but he seemed dainty yeah and i think harold lloyd's voice was more that kind of oh gee shucks kind of character that he actually played it's more than what you would expect and also i just think because Buster had this blank expression that made sense in silent films. They just didn't know what to do with him, so they 
they stuck him with Jimmy Durante, who talked Ooh. a lot. Uh, and they didn't belong together. They were not duos in films worked if it was their idea. <laughs> yeah, he did not belong with Jimmy Durante. That was not no, good. No, I can't him. imagine that. No, it, it made no sense. But in terms of old British stuff, Monty Python, Bonzo Dog Band are your things. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Jeremy Brett series, I remember you were a big fan of. He remains, to me, the only Sherlock Holmes. Although I do enjoy the yeah, the Guy Ritchie films, just because they're fun. And also I'm in them. This is also a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm visible in the first one. Yeah, I do the, you know, the, the meme of uh, Leo DiCaprio pointing at the screen. <laughs> Uh, I do that every time I watch that. I'm like, there he is. <laughs> there he is, shaking his little fist. Yeah. <laughs> In slow motion. <laughs> so um, which is the better, talking about the um, Granada Sherlock Holmes, which is the better Watson? Oh, uh, I've forgotten their names, but the older one. Edward, I have as well. This, I've, I've sprung this question on myself, let alone on you. One of them's Edward. He's the second one, I think, right? Yes, the original one had he left to spend more time with his family or something like that. But the first one, he was just sort of they don't even I assume they're going off of scripts, but it seems like he was written differently as well. The the first one was sort of like obsessed with if someone had left snacks out, he would be you'd find him like, ooh, just digging around in the scones and Anytime there was a woman around, he's like, Holmes, we have to help her. She's pretty. <laughs> uh, and then and then the older one, he was just very businesslike. Hardwick. Yeah. Th that was just, one of them, wasn't it? Edward, yeah. Edward Hardwick. I think he's the second one. And then the first one is Burke or something. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the first one was very funny. I have to give him that. So maybe he's actually my favorite in terms of just, he would just embarrass himself all the time and it was just very amusing he was like food motivated female motivated <laughs> i think i like the first one better because he because he's funnier yeah i'm going to look up the names now we're um... i would say the more serious one is is i like better because i tend to i'm very into verisimilitude i like everything to be believable and and makes sense to a fault i would say <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I think David Burke. We we got there in the end. Edward Hardwick and David Burke. I think I'm with you, actually. I like David Burke because he's funnier. Yeah. But I think Edward Hardwick does feel more real and is less of a less of a, a goofus. Yeah, because Holmes is supposed to be the one that's sort of irresponsible and unpredictable. And then my ideal uh, Watson is just someone who's very dependable and, you know, sort of keeps Holmes on track. He's supposed to bring his gun and like if some if there's trouble, you know, I'm there. Yeah, he's pretty deadly serious in the books, I would say. Well, I've chosen to introduce Evelyn to the happy world of the 1970s public information film. What could possibly go wrong? First up, we watch 1977's Notorious Apaches. And in the manner of the Devil's Work podcast, we should start with a content warning. Because this one is a bit it's a bit heavy. Yes. <laughs> Since you're the uh, Devil's Work guest, would you like to provide the content warning? Hmm. I have to think of all the things that I, we, we would... I think the main one is child imperilment. Yes, in general. Uh, we usually go down a ridiculous list of specific... I, I think it would kind of give some of it away, but... I think it's all really child imperilment. It's all, it's all branches from that. Every possible way to squash a child... <laughs> 
<laughs> pretty much is explored yeah i mean this is a tricky one i was sort of a bit up and down about this one because i like retro tube to be fun and quite cozy uh and these these films are horrifying and they're intended to be horrifying because they're designed to be shown to children to warn children in order for them to stay safe mm-hmm. but there there is something sort of notorious about british public information films of that era generally that makes them a bit of a thing which i think means that you can talk about them in in sort of a fun-ish context or at least a sort of a texture context i think the way that they've approached it uh framing it through the imaginary basically from the kids point of view you know the games that they're playing are are taking very seriously there's bound to be some intentional or unintentional comedy in there the first couple of times i watched it it's just flat out ominous yes but watching it for this one i was actually taking notes and realizing that there's a lot of comedy in the script there is yes on a second viewing it sort of pops up here and there in order to prevent me basically from just doing all the talking, can you tell us the um, the premise of Apaches? Uh, well, it's called Apaches because this gang of, I would say, six children. Yes. About age eight or nine around there. Uh, they're very, very deep in this game of being a tribe of Apaches attacking a, a fort, which is just the the local farm area where they live. They're so into their game that they're not quite paying attention to the dangers of farm life. (laughs) And it all goes horribly wrong. It does. (laughs) But over time, this is the amusing thing is it's, it's meant to show a variety of examples of, of danger. Uh, But because it's a narrative, it's the same group of children and no one's really talking about, uh, wow, well, we keep dying. (laughs) <laughs> I know. I'm running out of friends. They touch on it once. There's one moment where um, one of the characters says, "But we we do this if there's ten of us, but there's only five of us." And the other one says, "No, there's four of us." Uh-huh. And he's like, "Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah." <laughs> but other than that, they completely ignore that fact that they're they're dwindling in number. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, this was shown in the US. Probably not very widely, but shown in the US and Canada as well as the UK. Uh, you might be might be hard pressed to find anyone who actually saw it. I don't know, but can you think? Like, do you know of any equivalent U.S. equivalents, or would anything like this have been made in America? I have to assume that some attempts have been made to warn children of various dangers, but I don't remember being shown anything like this. I think American media is more. There's no artistry to it. They just would just show you the, the the scenario unfolding. Like if you if you run into the path of a moving vehicle, you will die. Or they'd have someone come in and tell you this. The closest thing to this sort of film I've only seen as an adult for like safety training for a job. Uh, you know the dangers of forklifts and things like that. This was almost universally a thing as well, particularly in the seventies, that British directors would use this as an opportunity to get creative. Uh, and possibly the most famous one is called "The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Water." Amazing title. <laughs> yeah, it's Donald Pleasant uh, doing the voiceover, essentially voice doing the voice of Death, the Grim Reaper. So you see this this cloaked 
black cloaked figure lurking around stagnant ponds and water in quarries and that sort of thing and and basically observing children falling in and drowning with this very doom-laden Donald Pleasant's voice uh, narration. (laughs) I am the spirit of dark and lonely water, ready to trap the unwary, the show-off, the fool. And this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. But no one expects to find me here. It seems too ordinary. But that pool is deep. The boy is showing off. The bank is slippery. The show-offs are easy. But the unwary ones are easier still. This branch is weak, rotten. It'll never take his weight. And I think the director did outright say that he just wanted to make a horror film. and right. So it, it's very creative and very atmospheric. There's lots of fog and mist and, you know, like with Apaches, very beautiful camera angles and interesting shots. Mm-hmm. It's not just straightforward, set up the camera, film the thing. It's very well thought out and is, is made to look very pretty as well. Well, not pretty, but, you know, aesthetic. <laughs> we we certainly appreciate this. I'm wondering if the target audience of nine-year-olds were <laughs> interested in sitting through a half-hour piece to get their minds bent about dangers? Or did you think this was effective? Did you see these as a child? I didn't see these ones, no. The only ones I specifically remember, there's a few, possibly the most famous ones of all are the ones warning of the dangers of electricity. So there's electrical substations mm-hmm. and pylons, usually involving kites and frisbees. <laughs> and there's several variations, but they normally involve exploding children. It was children exploding in showers of sparks and their trousers bursting into flames instantly and you know sparing no pulling no punches go on get it we're not supposed to go in there oh go on there's a gap down there a gang of kids broken yesterday i saw them Pass me that bit of wood I don't know if I would have been inclined to monkey around with electrical substations anyway, but they certainly put me off. I think that would work, but I'm like in the case of the other film, The Finishing Line, it's so it's so deep into the the imaginary scenario of being on the train tracks being this event for fun. I think it might have had the the opposite effect where <laughs> You know, it's just a train track and now these kids have seen this amazing thing and it's put some ideas in their heads like, oh, maybe I do want to go over there. <laughs> I do wonder if both of them, the children at the time, would have found them more exciting than actually, you know, warnings. It's like, oh, yes, like, who's going to get killed next yeah. kind of thing. It's like, oh, I hope it's not yeah. Sharon. I like Sharon. I hope it's Sharon. She's really annoying. Or... Uh-huh. <laughs> it's maybe too artistic. <laughs> Yeah. The, the, I generally saw the 80s ones and they were a bit more sensible. The one that really stuck in my mind was the Stranger Danger one starring uh, lovely comedy actor Duncan Preston. Ooh. It's played very straight and he's 
he plays it just really nice. That's good because that's what <laughs> that's what you need to watch out for. Hey, you haven't seen Debbie Scott, have you? I don't know where she is. Who are you waiting for? Is she? Not one of these. Come on. No, thanks. I know you're not supposed to take speech from strangers, but I'm not a stranger, am I? I often come here. You've seen me here before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, then. Where do you live, love? Clothes. Jump in, I'll give you a lift. A better way. We'll see you, Mum, on the way. Let's save her a walk. And, and just seem, seeming really reasonable and kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a properly chilling one. Yeah. And that did. That one worked. And then suddenly you've got a piece of art, like a one-hour photo or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, that was really triggering my Duncan Preston Stranger Danger alarm bells when he's walking him home from football. No! No, 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 no! <laughs> this is all wrong on every on every level. Stop. <laughs> the Patches is a uh, 1977 public information film. It's directed by John McKenzie, um, who's a proper film director. He's most famous for the gangster film Long Good Friday. Um, so proper pedigree. Okay, so does that have any bearing in the sort of when they were playing their crime noir shoot 'em up game? I thought it was probably a very well shot. <laughs> it was, yeah. A, Long Good Friday is actually 1980, so that's after this. But he did do a film earlier that we watched at um, school called Unman Wittering and Zygo, which is a really creepy film about, I think, either public school boys or grammar school boys. I was shown that while I was actually uh, a grammar school boy at an all-boys all school, so <laughs> that made it particularly unsettling. These charges were never heard as the native was sentenced to death by the Chief Justice for other criminal offences. Many people felt that this case had been trumped up to save Hastings' embarrassment in his position as governor. But it is extremely unlikely that such news... Who's that muttering? Me, sir. He can't help it, sir. He says hypotenuse all the time, sir. He likes the word. Mr. Pelham said he was hypotenuse by it, sir. (laughs) Stop it! Very well, you've had ample warning. This form will be kept in on Saturday afternoon from 2.30. It's not a good idea, sir. Why is that, Cloistermouth? Mr. Pelham tried it once, sir. The week before last. And that's why we killed him, sir. Uh, And he went on to... uh, He did the Honorary Console, Fourth Protocol, and um, did some American films. He did Ruby, about Jack Ruby. He's quite accomplished. Which shows, I think, because it is really well-directed. It is, yes. There are some, I mean, very good performances from the kids. They deliver the the comedy quite well. They do. Uh, when they're all preparing to storm the fort and he's giving, they're going down the line and he's giving the names of uh, all of the, the warriors. Uh, yes. And he's sort of half committed to, you know, he's calling them uh, like, Tim, he's a... A brave warrior and i'm chief geronimo of the great plains and and then R- tom and robert and also the line just after that i'm geronimo i'm cold <laughs> kim eight eight years and three quarters she says that means she's eight sharon nine apache women weren't just squaws they often fought too michael wearing a red band he's daft the apaches never wore red me Geronimo, chief of the Apaches, great warrior of the plains. Tom Roberts. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I think that I, you know, as I, as I get older, my memories of these things fade. But I do remember just the natural way that kids will dip in, out, in and out of playing. At one moment, they're, they're deep in imagination mode. And then they can just be like, well, I have to go get lunch. And it's, it's no trouble switching back and forth for them. And I think he did a really good job of not patronizing them or looking down on them or holding them at arm's length yeah it's like oh look at these silly children's games he he shot all of the, the actual games as action sequences yes he shot them as they're imagined so even the game of sort of football stroke hide and seek is really dynamically shot and there's handheld cameras and these whip pans and a crash zoom at one point when it pulls out from the can that they're using as a football and yeah, it's really nicely shot. And he's shooting through things and under things. And I was, yeah, very impressed. They're not ever shot, you know, in their imagination. You never see them in, in you know, full Apache garb or anything like that. You don't switch over to what's in their minds necessarily. It's, it's given some intensity. As a person who has been known to play games as a child... I was never so fully immersed that I saw it in my head. So it was, it, it was, it felt very authentic, particularly towards the beginning where they're running down the street and then ducking to cover behind the side of the house in, in a little English village really reminded me of being in Huff on the Hill in Lincolnshire with Peter and Richard and Ben and Mark. And we were playing Star Wars and, you know, with our pretend guns and leaping into cover and running it behind things. It really had that feel to it. It didn't, yeah. it, it felt authentic. It also, it's a little time capsule into that part of British culture which has been slightly forgotten uh, in that the 60s in particular, but also creeping into the 70s, were utterly obsessed by Western movies and TV, which is Westerns generally. Right. I was going to ask how how that came about because like, I, I understand American children playing cowboys and indians and that sort of thing but there's a certain irony to uh (laughs) playing either side of that scenario as an english child (laughs) when we talk about 60s nostalgia and the music and everything like then the psychedelia and all the things that go with the british nostalgia of the 60s and 70s but rarely does it this huge obsession with westerns Mm. come up even more than the current cultural obsession with superheroes. But just all the time on TV, they'd be showing westerns, and the British TV shows would always do a western-themed episode. So Doctor Who had a western story, and The Prisoner did a western episode, and The Avengers did at least one western episode. Mm-hmm. And the bat, like The Beatles did Rocky Raccoon, and The Hollies did one, ELP did one. Life Orchestra, I think, did one. So there'd be songs about shootouts and Western towns and that kind of thing, but there'd also be lots of songs about Native Americans. Yeah. Um, so Idle Race did one. The Sweet did Wigwam Bam. <laughs> Possibly even more than American bands. British bands would do songs about Native Americans. Because we're coming at it from a slightly different angle culturally. Yeah. It's a bit more of a level playing field. We're just as interested in the Native Americans as we are the Cowboys. Uh, yeah, it's something that we, at this point, wouldn't necessarily want to play at all. <laughs> no, I remember when I was at school in the 80s, this was long after it had all passed, so I think possibly I think possibly Star Wars, which is the same year as Apaches, although it came to Britain in 78, I think that possibly wiped out the Western. 
as a thing that children would play. Space Western. Space Western, yeah. <laughs> because I remember at school once we attempted a game of Cowboys and Indians just because our parents' generation were going on about it so much. Mm-hmm. Back in my day, it was well, Cowboys and Indians, proper games, uh-huh. and all that kind of tedious stuff. So we thought, well... They go on about it so much and they make it sound so great. Let's let's have a go at Cowboys and Indians. And we couldn't get into it because we had no cultural context for it. It's like, well, we, we feel bad for the natives, mm-hmm. but also we've no, we just don't have sufficient interest in it. Mm-hmm. So we tried it for 10 minutes and go, no, this isn't, this isn't working for us. A new era calls for a new version of, well, I don't know. I, do, do children still play war though? Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if they do. Have we, have we gotten past that yet? Is it, is it too real yet? <laughs> Because we certainly played plenty of war. I mean, we did Star Wars and things, but we also did... I think we used to play World War Three. Oh, my. I know. The 80s generation were working through some things. The film opens with six small silhouettes against a spectacular sky. It's a really nice opening image. It's really n- nicely shot and very ominous. You see six tiny silhouettes. And I think it, it's supposed to look like a Western. It does, <laughs> indeed. And it has the Western typeface. And the and the and drums, the, drums. the director is really kind of getting into it, just being kids playing, even though because of the context and us going into it, knowing that dreadful things are going to happen. It feels like a horror film from the off, really, doesn't it? Yeah. And then there are these these cutaways to the the adults. They're preparing for a party. And and our narrator, who is Chief Geronimo, one of the... What's his name? Danny. Danny. But don't call him Danny, he'll be furious. He's Geronimo, thank you very much. Until he's uh, something else. But he's describing in pieces throughout what adults like to do and how they get ready for a party and this is mom's favourite shirt. And he rails against how boring adult parties are because they don't play games or have presents. And, and frankly, I agree with him. The trouble with grown-up parties, adults' parties, is that they don't seem to enjoy themselves. No one ever brings presents, and no one gets a present to take home with them. That's not what I call a party. They just eat and stand around drinking. No one plays games. Isn't that funny? He's right about that. It's better to play as long as you play carefully. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, not not in the sewage pit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What a a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I have some questions about that. Uh, was he actually in sewage? When we see him go... So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we should run through okay, exactly okay. what happens. Because uh, it does happen in, in sequence. And, and one of the things that you've mentioned already, which is sort of funny, but I think it also makes it more of a horror film and it makes it more horrifying, mm-hmm. is that they keep going back to the farm yes. to play on it, even though one of them's died there the previous day. The pre- we're never quite sure of the timeline but fairly recently. And I think that's part of the the eeriness of it. Like if this was an American film about safety, they would just show you a series of scenarios of children that have no connection to each other. Like here's an example and here's an example. But in this, it's a story and they all know each other and they're not quite taking into account what's already gone wrong. And I think the parents would lock all the children indoors like, well, you're not playing with those kids again because uh, three of them have died this winter. And the farmhands as well are always happy to join in. Yes. <laughs> Despite the huge amount of fatalities on their farm. 
yeah, I'd, if I were driving a tractor, I'd be like, get get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that struck me was that my experience of trespassing on farms when I was little, because I grew up in that sort of environment, mm-hmm. the farmhands and farmers wouldn't be that pleased to see you and wouldn't join in your games. No. And it took me actually to quite a while to realise, actually, this is Sharon's farm. This is why they're joining in. They're not trespassing. Right, yes. It's the farm that Sharon lives on. I'd only just noticed that. And she, at one point she talks about her grandpa collecting mm-hmm. weird bits of old farm machinery. And she, she recommends they play in some other place. And they're like, oh, no, well, it's more fun in here with all the hooks and things. <laughs> the hooks and poisons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the opening narration, it couldn't look more British. He's doing this western movie style narration but it looks very very british very english the the countryside and just the the quality of the film stock yeah very quintessential outfits i would say of of that time they looked great i'd love to wear something like that now particularly oh yeah danny yeah danny's jacket that's great very stylish kids there's always one kid wearing bright red pants for some reason (laughs) why not as is my want, the reason I was slightly late coming to this podcast is I spent quite a long time trying to determine which village they were actually in wow. using clues. <laughs> and frustratingly, I couldn't. So we know that the children were recruited from a school in Maidenhead in Berkshire. Did they, are they actually friends or classmates? They seem to be. I don't know if they came from a drama school or just from the local school. It, it didn't really specify... And it doesn't specify where the farm is. It just says home counties, which which covers quite a large area. But I'm assuming that the village and farm was somewhere in Berkshire, near to Maidenhead. Frustratingly, there's a pub sign that peeps into the corner of frame, but not far enough to actually see <laughs> what it says. It's just two words beginning with B. Ah. For a while, I was convinced it was Boxford in Berkshire, because the church looks almost identical and also it's at the bottom of a hill but when i went to google street view the church doesn't back out onto a street or a village square i don't think it is boxford but the church looks very very similar to boxford unless they've reshaped the roads somehow i'm like a dog with a bone when it comes to doing these sorts of bits of detective work uh there's a a notice stuck up on a um, a lamp post, but there's reflection, light reflecting onto it because it's in, in a plastic wallet, a plastic sleeve, so you can't quite read what's written on this notice stuck on the on the lamp post. And just a, there's a few clues that are tantalisingly just slightly out of reach. Well, you just have to enhance the image. That's what we do in America. You just say <laughs> image en- enhance, and it it will enhance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up a couple of the. Uh, registration plates of the cars though because you can do that online oh wow it didn't tell me where they were registered the yellow digger that they have a yellow sanderson digger registered for tax in 1976 you're probably in the right area but maybe not the right town are you gonna have to ask one of the kids i will i have to track him down I, i live quite close to maidenhead so i should go over there and have it out with a lot of them i think if you run through the street as an apache any of them are there, they'll come out and talk to you for sure. They'll come in and jo- come out and join in. Yeah. But hopefully it's not Danny because he'll berate me. Right. <laughs> I have to do everything, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Danny is so bossy. Yeah. He's one of the, those really aggressively bossy 1970s kids. I'm only going to come stand in the den. Why? Because that's the rules of the game. This is near enough. Let's get relieved, it won't count. 
Come on! some level of uh you know he's he gives um sharon right sharon mm. he gives her a hard time but he's clearly got respect for her i think there's a bit of a crush there yeah he's uh impressed by some of the things she did I honest, honestly she's too smart for that group <laughs> i think so yeah but it's her farm. They just come round. She can't get rid of them. So mm-hmm. she has to play with them anyway. But yeah, I think Danny's level of bossiness with Sharon. They have a bit of a double act. But I think there's definitely, he's definitely got a bit of a crush there. Yeah. He calls her thick a couple of times. <laughs> that was a great line. He's uh, like, you'll pick it on me. Enter <laughs> <laughs> I'm General Cook, 9th Cavalry. But I thought we were playing Indians. That is because you are thick. You're bonkers. All right, man? Yes, sir. Yes. How is it, Sergeant? Sir, quiet, sir. Yeah, too quiet. I don't like it. I want to know when we change from being Apaches. Look, if there are ten of us, we could be the Apaches all the time, and the rest could be the cavalry all the time. But there's only five of us, so we have to be both. But there's only four of us. Yeah, four. Well, we just abruptly switched to... Uh... Some kind of uh, fort soldier with a sword and yeah, I think they'd switch to playing the um... some kind of cavalry. They didn't get the memo. <laughs> I've sort of been avoiding, <laughs> rather squeamishly. I've been avoiding talking about actually what happens to these children. So the first one is Kim. They attack a tractor pulling a trailer, uh, and the driver is gamely playing along. He's shooting back at them, miming you know miming with a invisible gun and. This little girl, Kim, climbs onto the back of the trailer for the tractor and is very victorious that she's she's taken it. And then he slams the brake on <laughs> and she goes under the wheels. He does, yes. And there's the, the bit of, you know, the broken toy and the, and the spot of blood. Honestly, I mean, it's yes, it's a dangerous area, but I have to place the blame on the first death on the tractor driver. <laughs> yeah, it's quite shocking, though. It is, but it gets more shocking. That's one of the milder ones. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, out of context, if you were just watching this and you'd no idea what it was, that death would uh, just, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I think if you put somebody in front of it and just said, there's a short film called Apaches, <laughs> didn't tell them anything about it, it would be brutal. Mm-hmm. And then they're all just sort of beholding what's happened. And I think it cuts to at school, with the coats on the hooks, her name is removed from the wall to make it clear what's happened. <laughs> That's a really eerie bit, isn't it? It's just mm-hmm. this deserted cloakroom and all the children are still playing. That's the thing as well. Like in all it, all these cutaways, after each of the children dies, it usually cuts away to the school and these, this em- an empty room. But you can still hear the children blithely playing and all the racket of them at, at playtime. While everyone's outside, someone's come to collect the child's things. Very solemn. <laughs> sort of haunting. So the second day, it starts with them. Now, this wouldn't be something you would know about culturally. They have 
they have a long and very earnest chat about um, multicolored swap shop. Oh, okay. <laughs> no idea what they were talking about. So there used to be a Saturday morning children's TV program presented by Noel Edmonds called Multicolored Swap Shop, and the USP of that was that children could swap their toys with other children. Oh, that's an excellent idea. I think it's a catastrophe waiting to happen, but I don't think there. <laughs> I think these days it might just be a legal minefield, but it, apparently it seemed to work back then. So kids would phone up and say, I've got a Barbie house and I want a bicycle. I've got a torn piece of paper and I want a fully working Commodore 64 computer. That kind of thing. <laughs> and then other kids would phone in and, and say, oh, I want that and I've got the thing you want. And they do swaps. Show them if you've got them. Keith Chegwin, who was their roving reporter, he would go out to road shows and they do live swaps. They just have crowds of children holding up board games and clamouring in that way that 70s children always just seem to clamour constantly. 70s children are either needlessly <laughs> aggressive or constantly clamouring. Is, is my experience. <laughs> a very lively bunch. So I do wonder if this was a um, this was an improvised chat. It seems very natural. Tom, his reaction, because he's talking about the fact that he's he's got um, an action man or several action men, um, which if you, if you aren't familiar with those, they're the British equivalent of G.I. Joe. Oh, okay, yes. So they're sort of one foot tall, bendable soldier characters mm -hmm. but when sharon says that they're soppy he, he looks genuinely affronted uh-huh how dare you <laughs> how dare you madam <laughs> some girl was swapping elephants she brought them along elephants real elephants no i saw that they were rubber elephants she was swapping them what for of course she was swapping she was on a swap shop wasn't she for animals Elephants are animals. Yeah, but she wanted to swap for glass animals because she had too many elephants and wanted to get rid of them because her mother said so. If I was her, I'd swap something totally different. What? I don't know. Stamps? Nah. Guns? Nah. Action men? Yeah, i got loads of them. They're sissies. They're not. Yes, They're they not. Are. Yes, they are. You but girls don't all shop your dolls. Huh? Prams? Nah. I'm wondering, uh, I'm getting a bit ahead, but one of the things that's collected from one of the children's desks is a headless uh, male doll. Yes, that's an action man. I noted that. Yes. yes. I think that's also one of the clever things about this film. It does have lots of subtle things in it like that, that after Tom is killed, you do actually see his action man and he's, and he's headless. Yes. <laughs> John McKenzie is actually making a proper film. He's not just get, going, oh, this is some rubbish that kids are going to watch. He is actually doing a good job of it. Mm -hmm. The most famous bit in this film is what happens to Tom. It's quite alarming, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the one I think about the most, I think, just the, you know, in terms of picturing experiencing the thing yourself. Yes. I think that was one of the things listed, like, this is, this is a true danger. Uh, couple of them you can tell they've been switched out for dummies mm -hmm. but this one it's actually the little boy playing tom going under what seems to be the slurry pit i mean they do cut away and it's a close-up so you can't see the context so clearly it's it's an effect shot he's in some other environment right. where he's going under something hopefully in a safe way hopefully but it looks i mean it, it's really happening though that's really that little boy actually going under that stuff he was just trying to hide well i do wonder He's sort of skirting the edge of this, I don't know what to call it. What's a good thing to call it? This filth pit. Yeah, slurry pit. Which is completely liquid. And 
he's already, you know, the game requires hiding. No one's seen him go over there. And now he's fallen in. Do they find him? No, he gets immediately sucked under, doesn't he? I don't know if they just leave him Did there. anyone ever find him? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's horrifying though, isn't it? Drowning is bad enough. <laughs> but when it's in cow dung. I spent a long time thinking about whether they'd actually, like, is this child just missing or did, did were they able to figure out what happened to him? <laughs> do they rush over? I think they when they hear him screaming, because he's calling for help as he goes under, I think, do they rush over? No, there's just a shot of Danny hearing him calling for help and going, hmm. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's no indication wow. that, that they were aware of where he went. And it's just a little extra. It's it's bad enough and it's haunting enough, but I have to, I have to wonder if they were able to solve that one. Yeah, he's the kid with the the action man collected on his desk. All the kids are outside playing as if nothing has happened. They're just being rambunctious in the playground, and then a teacher takes all of his stuff out of his desk. Mm-hmm. That makes it eerie because it's not just there's the mo you know the the, the action packed moment of death. But it does give you some sort of idea that then it just becomes this very quiet and mournful thing that this kid has gone now and we just take quietly take away their stuff. And if we're ever if we ever come close to that sort of scenario, I think that's how most of us experience it is we'll be in class and we'll find out that oh, the kid who sat at that desk, he's not there anymore. And then and then you hear that he's died and you wonder about you know, what that means, really. It's a weird experience. Nobody at my school died when I was there, but certainly the kid who got hit by a car, mm-hmm. who was in my class, uh, and I, I was there when he got hit, but I didn't see it, but my mum saw it. because he, he ran out from behind the school bus. Mm-hmm. And it was very eerie the next day that, like, there's his desk where he should have been. Yeah. And we know this bad thing's happened to him and he he did survive and he was generally fine he came in the whites of his eyes were kind of red uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and he used it for extra swagger you know he's a he's a quite a swaggery sort of kid oh yeah you gotta make the most of that sort of thing were, were his eyes red because his his blood got all sloshed around inside him i think so something like that yeah he got shaken up <laughs> he got hit at quite some considerable speed i think certainly the following day with the empty chair and the empty desk where he should have been, it was eerie. Yeah. And we were all shaken. I suppose that's the point of these films, to remind children that they're not <laughs> invincible. <laughs> and then there were four. This is where they're playing forts, isn't it? Um. Yes, I think so. And this is the point when I wrote down, like, you'd think the parents would forbid these children to play with each other. Oh, yeah, and this is the when they decide to... They discuss that they can't play Apaches because there's not enough of them. And then later, they are playing Apaches anyway because they want to. That's the bit where Sharon impresses Danny because she's she goes in a particularly vicious berserker rage. Yeah, she's very good at stabbing uh, the ground. <laughs> Sharon, that was great! And she's like, it's nothing. Ah! 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 Hey, Sharon, that was great! It was nothing. The actor playing Danny seems to have like a sty in his eye or a minor eye injury. Does he? In the close-up. It would be ironic, certainly, if he picked up an injury whilst filming. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these moments seem sort of uh, lax on safety, which is very ironic. More so in the other film than this one. Yeah, the other one seems very dubious, doesn't it? But there is a bit in this one where you think 
the next death is going to get be somebody getting run over by a tractor and they just duck out of the way in time and it's and it is actually done in real time there's no edit in that it's very stressful this is where they're in grandpa's shed in in the farm sharon's grandpa's shed and they're apaches again and they decide a celebration because they've killed all the uh, soldiers <laughs> they are going to drink the white man's fire liquid yes and there's a there a few times there's some very good misdirects like they're in this space with all these big hooks hanging down and I thought, oh no. And then they just sit down to have a drink instead. <laughs> and Sharon forgets, even though it's her idea that they should mime drinking it, this fluid, because they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. She's the one who forgets to mime and does actually drink some. Yeah. Not much, I would say. And she spat it out, but... Doesn't take much. I blame Danny because he said, well, it's not... If if it was poison, it would look like it. I think Danny can be blamed for all of this, frankly. <laughs> he led them all straight to hell. <laughs> he really did. And I think the bit with what happens to Sharon is the bit where it really crosses over into not actually being fun. It's very upsetting. It is, isn't it? It's properly horrible. And she's, you can sort of tell that she's she's contemplating how bad it tastes. And then when they when they split up to go home she's holding her stomach a little bit is it danny who takes a lingering look at her front door and you can tell he's thinking should we call an ambulance should we tell someone yeah yeah he's giving it some serious thought and he's like now nah, i'll go home and watch telly yeah and he did ask her like right after she drank it like are you all right so he thought about it quite a bit hers is the one death that happens off screen mm-hmm. that you don't see it but it's the most upsetting it's it's very haunting she's just in the middle of the night the light goes on in her room and she's screaming in pain and calling out for her mother and then we see her her bedroom and her stuff's getting packed away and she's a I think she's got Starskin Hutch posters on her wall. She was the coolest of the lot, for sure. It definitely all goes downhill when Sharon's not in it. <laughs> yes. And then there's three left. And then they're playing Starskin Hutch without Sharon, even though she's the Starskin Hutch fan, apparently. And they've got actual pop guns. I thought this bit was actually done really well, the way it was filmed. Yeah, it, it has some proper noir qualities to it like when they're they're chasing each other down uh alleys and things and they've got these silhouetted shots it does feel like an episode of starsky and hutch the, the kids are taking it really seriously and they're doing the snappy dialogue i'm too old for this shit <laughs> yeah he says i'm getting too old for these capers <laughs> you know what's that hutch what's that i'm getting too old for these capers huh? I bet you guys think you got me, huh? Come on, with your hands up, dummy! Ah, don't make me laugh, Hutchinson. This is Starsky talking. You too! <laughs> Wait, Hutch, you rush in. Are you rushing? I'll cover you. I'll cover you. I'll tell you what, we're both going. We're both covering each other. Good idea. Hey, you guys rapping or shooting? Make up your minds! Don't you worry about us! Dumb, dumb, you just watch your ass. It's a slight anticlimax. One of them ends up getting squashed by a gate that falls over. The gate that was used to shoot it, I thought, well, that doesn't look very heavy at all. But later when you see some statistics, that's one of the most common ways to die on a farm, apparently. Getting hit by a falling gate. Yeah, who knew? I wonder if Final Destination is a remake of this. (laughs) I've never seen one of those and I, I think I, it's probably been, I probably missed the boat on that. But sort of, there is a morbid curiosity. That kind of reminds me a bit of 
the Gus Van Sant film Elephant. Have you seen Elephant? I haven't, still. I mean, I found it a really tough watch, but that's actually a remake of a film that looks very like this one in, in texture. It's a, a British film called, it's, it's for grown-ups rather than school kids, called Elephant, about shootings in Northern Ireland. In a school setting? or No, in... Um, so the American version is a school setting, but this is sectarian violence. And it plays out structurally a bit like Apache, so it doesn't have the, the through narrative. There's no real characters, there's no storyline to it, there's just scenes of people walking into a building pulling out a gun and shooting somebody. And it, it takes on this really grim rhythm. So it's just somebody walking for a few minutes with with sort of determination. So in the uh, Gus Van Sant film, there's a lot of that, but it's school kids walking down corridors. Alan Clark, the director, he follows these men through a location and it builds up that level of tension. Once you know sort of what the thing is, then you're kind of... It's this sense of dread of who, who it is he's actually there to kill. Right. And it's very haunting and very powerful even though it's a completely different thing to apaches in what it's for it has a similar structure and a similar grindingly awful rhythm to it did i ever did you ever watch the short film miracle fish yes the new zealand you sent that to me it really does sneak up on you you don't even realize for quite a while what it is but this child goes to the he's at school and he goes to the nurse because he's not feeling well and he falls asleep and then when he wakes up, there's no one in the school at all. And he, I think at one point in one of the classroom, one of the classrooms, he finds a book about alien abduction and he thinks maybe everyone's been taken by aliens and he's sort of having a good time for a long time. And he doesn't realize that uh, he's alone in the school with a shooter. And then he ends up encountering this man and they have this very chilling exchange because he, he's just completely innocent about it. And he just uh, interacts with the man not knowing what's happened. But it's a great film. So we're now down to two Apaches left. And there's then this very mournful narration about the scattered Apache nation and how they will fight to survive and they'll... Yeah, low on food and ammunition... Yeah, it's, uh, when that narration kind of makes me want to shake Danny by the shoulders, he's like just leaning into the. We're 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 having a hard time surviving the winter. I'm like, yes, well, stop playing Apaches. <laughs> stop playing on the farm, you fool. The Apaches have fought well against great odds. Our braves are few, and the white man is many. We have no food. Winter is coming. Our people will starve. But the blame has to rest with some of the farm people because they nonetheless let him ride on the tractor. I suppose it is part of the same farm. It kind of had a feeling that he went somewhere else because he went off to the... It seemed like he went to the other side of the hill and into the woods. It's probably the same farm people, though. But yeah, at this point, you know, letting any of these kids just, oh, have a go at the tractor. Just At this point, uh, with the adults and with the kid, I just I have no sympathy. Also, because he doesn't jump off. I presume he, he doesn't want to just abandon the tractor and get into trouble for that, but he certainly, it's not going very fast. No. <laughs> He's like, oh no, it's going wrong. <laughs> and then it went wrong right off a cliff. Well, not a cliff, but a steep ravine. The nearest they could get to a cliff in Berkshire. And the, yeah, this is the odd thing. He's not... Wh- whoever was the other kid is the one who survives. 
this ordeal. Michael, cousin Michael. Yeah, but Danny is the narrator. Yes, he's narrating. We discover this. There's two twists. We discover that Danny is narrating from beyond the grave. <laughs> And the, the the party we see the adults preparing for and shining their black shoes and and everything is uh, it's the uh, what's it called a wake yes it's the bit of the little gathering after the funeral anyway the lunch the eating of food in honor of the dead person Daniel Perry age seven I think age seven was he age seven is that all yeah on his gravestone it says Daniel Perry he was very bossy. So that's the film, and but the the trouble is that any sort of kitsch enjoyment you might get out of watching this thing is is rather underset by the horrifying roll call at the very end, where they do have a list of names and ages of children who have actually died in actual farm-related accidents. A lot of them four, age four. It's quite a tough ending to it, as it should be. I mean, it's that's what it's intended for. Yeah. Um run over by tractors, crushed by gates, uh, suffocated in grain silos, all that sort of thing. There is a certain generation of grumpy old codgers going, oh, health and safety gone crazy. We don't have any of this health and safety stuff in my day. And look at me, I'm fine. Which is total survivor bias, because of course you're fine, because you didn't die. Right, you you made it. You got, A lot of that is just chance. This is proof that actually, you know, if the, these films were needed and... There was a reason for them making this. There's a lot to be said for making clear what dangers are. But this is a big thing about parenting, in my opinion. I'll see out in the world what I consider a bad parent. They'll yell at a child to not do that, climb on something. It's just get down from there. And it's never... Uh, if you're not careful, you can fall. Like you, They need explanations. Because otherwise you're just... All they hear is that you yell a lot. You really do need to tell children what's at stake. And they might not listen to you, but I, I, I think there's something to be said for explaining everything that you can. Which is why you and I are such great parents. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do, I do intend to be the best aunt that I can. Good. <laughs> I'm going to impart much wisdom and probably at some point corrupt her with some films that she's probably not old enough to watch yet. Are you just one aunt? Are you multiple aunts? Uh, just one, which is fun because then I can focus all my insane energy on her. <laughs> she's age two and uh, sometimes she knows my name and sometimes she calls me that lady. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, that's how I think of you. Mm-hmm. I want that lady to carry me. <laughs> I know who could be on my podcast next. That lady. Yeah. <laughs> Aunt Evelyn. Yes. <laughs> right, so Aunt Evelyn. So that was Apaches, which is the more famous of the two. Is it? I actually heard about that one. I didn't see it at the time, but I heard about that one um, because I heard Edgar Wright talking about it. He said it was a very influential film on him. Interesting. But the finishing line you don't hear about so much. Well, it's very uh, striking, I would say. It's very odd, isn't it, this one? Yeah. This is finishing line, also 1977, uh, directed by John Krish, who doesn't have quite the CV. He, he seems to mainly direct short films. Can you give us a, a, uh, a quick premise of the finishing line? This one is about the dangers of the railway. It starts as a, there's a child sitting on top of a, a bridge over a train track and you're hearing the, the voice of some school superintendent reminding the children not to ever play near the train tracks and do you think this is a game? And the kid is thinking in his head, well, what if it was, though? 
And then that just sort of uh, unfolds into a proper sporting event with all the different competitions and teams. And yes, completely leaning into this is a sport and we're going to play it and you'll see just how deadly it is. If Apaches was Final Destination, this is Battle Royale or the Hunger Games, really, isn't it? It's much more, it has much more of a sci-fi dystopian sort of, not sci-fi in a futuristic silver suits way. It's, it's very much 1977. It's sort of rubbing the children's face in it like, oh, you want games? I'll show you games. <laughs> yes. And it's very, very odd, isn't it? It's very surreal. Yeah, it's kind of unhinged. <laughs> yes. I think Apaches generally was fine, but this one was banned for 20 years. Really? Because there was quite a big outcry about it. I mean, it was very bloody. I guess because after one uh, instance of it, you kind of, you know, you'd have good decent people standing up and saying that's enough yes everyone's (laughs) complicit in this for everyone's very much over in fact the adults are more complicit than the children the children clearly don't really want to do this and it's the adults there that are making them do this and i wonder if that's why it was banned because it's much more of a fantasy and therefore probably less effective yeah because it's just so wild yeah it just sort of leans it's it's very suggestible in a way. It leans in very hard. And this one's more of a cinema verite sort of documentary feel, whereas Apache sort of had a documentary feel in that the kids' dialogue is very naturalistic, but it was still shot like an action film. But this one is is shot like just a normal documentary about a normal kids' sports day, just one that happens to be taking place across the around the train tracks yeah and the and the kid is like well what if it was this sporting event and it's like his idea of his i don't even know if he's in it though no he doesn't it- but he says and if i had a band there'd be a band playing it's a proper brass band there's nothing more evocative i think than a brass band a 70s brass band playing at a sports day it has been brought to my notice that some of you have been playing on the railway again You are old enough to understand that the railway is not the place for any kind of games. I'll say it again. The railway is not the game field. Yeah, but if it was, I'd have special races and plenty of trains. There'd be my special scoring system and a big scoreboard, 20 feet high. I'd ask all the parents to come. Oh yeah, I nearly forgot. I'd have a band. He doesn't look like the other. The other kids are all shaggy, floppy-haired seventies kids, but he's got like a buzz cut, so he looks quite different from the other kids. And and uh, having seen this after. Apaches, I was sort of, you know, like, oh no, just dread. They're preparing for this sports day and they're bringing out stretchers to prepare. I'm just like, oh God. They're all limbering up and the St. John's ambulance people are just laying out these lines of stretchers in preparation. So again, there's that sense of real unease, isn't there? Yeah. And all these, all these sports events are focused around, uh, Games to be played with the train. Each of the four teams competing starts here. They have to run up to the fence, break a hole big enough to get all the teams through, then they must run down the embankment, across the wells, and up the other side past the finishing line. There's four teams, red, yellow, blue and green teams, 
one of the girls in the blue team trips and knocks her head and falls unconscious. And then some of her blue comrades go back onto the tracks to try and help her. But there's a train coming. Which is the point. <laughs> yes. They're supposed to encounter the train, it seems. All four of her teammates together cannot... She's not stuck or anything, but they just aren't able to lift her. I think they're panicking. Yeah, they're showing very much that children are not quick or organized with their movements and they're all just sort of stumbling all over the place and they just leave her and she gets run down. It's the usual sports day clamour, but there's this this grim funereal silence as she's stretched off by St John's ambulance. I have to say, um, they've been instructed to break through the fence and they've got all these children, these very... Soft, delicate children actually climbing through a chain link fence. They actually are tearing down the fence, aren't they? Yeah, I I have to imagine that a lot of people got cuts. <laughs> during yes. There's just no way. And then and they're truly scrambling down the hill towards the train tracks. It's all happening for real. I mean, obviously, there aren't actual trains coming until it's all edited together, although they do interact with trains at one point. But one has to presume that they filmed it in a safe situation. But it is all still actually happening. The kids are all doing their own stunts. Like in Apaches, the kids are doing the stunts. The boy at the beginning, the, the boy who's imagining all this, he's actually sitting on the bridge over the train track with a good... 30-foot drop, 40-foot drop below him. There's nothing down there to catch him. I mean, it's possible that he's got a safety line around his waist or something, but I kind of think probably not. I think probably not. I think it's entire. Even though these are these are made for health and safety, yeah. I think the health and safety is probably really lax on them. I, this all makes me very nervous because um, one of the best-known on-set, on-location accidents in Hollywood... History is uh, was a train accident. Relatively recently, wasn't it? Like within the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. They were they were filming on a bridge, and no one had looked at a schedule or made sure talked to anyone about making sure trains weren't coming. I think Jeff Bridges was on that shoot, doing this dream sequence where he was on a bed on the train track, and of course they you know they managed to get the talent out of the way, but. Uh, all these people were clinging to the bridge and uh, several people were struck and a PA was killed. So trains in particular, it's kind of triggering. I can well imagine the uh, 12 and under stones throwing event. Yeah. They're clearly not throwing stones because you can see the, them bouncing off the train, but they are actually within a few feet of this moving train. Yes. Throwing these objects at it. Their stones are um, colour-coded for... for colour-coded, yes. Right. <laughs> and they get points for, you know, getting through a window, and then you find out there are more points to be had, depending. So the train goes past, and they all throw their stones, and then they stop the train. And the train staff see what damage they've done and then tot up the points. And then you find <laughs> you find that there are passengers. There are more points to be had if uh, there's a girl uh, holding her head and she's got blood streaming down her face. And that's extra. Four points. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, when I was wrapping my mind around the concept of this stone throwing, I'm like, wait, they're not going to. Will they? Oh, they did. <laughs> Team Yellow with their their yellow stone with blood on it. I feel um, obliged as a archive TV podcast at this point to mention some of the um, famous acting 
relatively famous acting faces who appear in extremely tiny minor roles. There's some fairly well-known names. The ones I recognise, people who are more immersed in, in uh, archive TV and British film and TV of that era will, will probably know all of them. But the, there's three that I, I knew for sure. The most famous one is Don Henderson, very distinctive gravelly voice. He was uh, head bannerman in a Doctor Who story called Delta and the Bannerman. He played General Tag in Star Wars. Oh, until this battle station is fully operational, we are vulnerable. The Rebel Alliance is too well equipped. They're more dangerous than you realise. I think he's the train driver. He has no lines, he just has... His face is mostly covered and blood streaming down his face. His line is, ah! <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So quite a familiar British actor. and he, He'd done movies and TV, but he does just seem to be sitting in the train grimacing and holding his face. He did it for the children. I think so, yeah. <laughs> we also have Yolande Palfrey, who turned up in uh, Doctor Who and Blake Seven. I think she is the... I think she's the girl, the injured passenger. Again, it's difficult to necessarily recognise these people through the, the blood makeup. The one person I did definitely recognise is an actor called Jeremy Wilkin, who also has done Blake Seven and Doctor Who. He's a Kelman in... Revenge of the Cybermen. He's a very distinctive blonde act. He's got very yellow blonde hair. He's the first train guard we see who's talking to his radio and totting up the points. Broken window, red two points. Broken window, green two points. Broken window, two points. Injured passenger, four points. Total for blue, six points. Broken window, two points. Direct hit on driver, six points. Total for yellow, eight points. And here is the result of the 12 and under stone throws. First, yellow, eight points. It's a, it's a worthy cause or a confusing cause. Yes. So the next game is, uh, which is sprung on them as a surprise. Oh, was it? The man with the tannoy, a literal tannoy. It says tannoy on the uh, speakers. So he's using an actual tannoy brand tannoy. <laughs> he announces that there's been a change to the schedule and we're now going to do, we're now going to play Last to Cross. And a lot of the kids seem quite horrified that this has been sprung on them. And you can tell they don't really want to do it. And they... It becomes very tetchy, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, those bossy 70s leaders just being like, just do as I say. Particularly the green, is it the green team, the leader of the green team, who's barking at his the other kids just to do it, just to get across. I don't care what happens to you, just get across. And they're saying, you go across first, you're the leader, you lead. And he's going, no, I tell you what to do. You, you think there wouldn't be much uh, strategy to this, which is like, well, everyone run as fast as you can. There's a, a narrator of some kind saying... The fun of it is only the people who are organising the event know how fast the train will be going. It could be going 80. If it's going 50, you've got three seconds to cross because you have to start crossing at a certain point. When the, when the train reaches a certain point, then you stop crossing, mm -hmm. start crossing. And if the train's going 50, you have three seconds. <laughs> but you might have less. The other kicker of this is that the, the two teams are on either side of the track, so they have to get past each other. Yeah, and children, small children never run into each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this one is quite messy this one's yeah it gets 
more and more horrible as it goes along, doesn't it? Yeah, a lot of them knock each other down. And it's quite graphic, isn't it? There's lots of... I mean, the blood, luckily, in this one isn't particularly convincing, because I think if it was... Right, they don't do really any gore. You probably, first time you see it, you probably imagine you see severed limbs. It's not, and I would say it's not really necessary. You can you can imagine it as it would actually be, and that's that would be too far. The result of the last across. Yellow, score two, injured two. Red, score one. Injured, three. Blue, score seven. Injured, one. Number of dead, one. Green, no score. Number of dead, four. The next event is the Great Tunnel Walk. Great tunnel walk. The tunnel itself is three miles long and dark and wet and smelly and horrible. And once inside, there'd be no turning back. You've got to keep going. And whoever manages to find their way out the other end will be the winner. On your marks. Get set. It kind of seems that the children's morale is mostly dampened by losing points and infighting and all that it's sort of the surreal quality of they're not really affected by the deaths in a way that i mean i guess that's the point is that it's a exercise surreal yes everyone's blasé about it i think only the st john's ambulance people look troubled but they're going along with it anyway yeah the, the only person there's the kid on the red team who's kind of got his eyes covered and keeps lashing out at his team leader trying to punch him when he's trying to and it seems like he might be a bit affected by the things that have happened it seems now that i'm thinking about numbers of teammates it seems like for the grand finale they there's an awful lot of kids at the end i think the different games they do by age the stone throwing is for the 12s and unders Mm, oh yes there's particular groups that do each of the games but the grand finale is where all all the survivors take part (laughs) it's really Quite eerie. They ramp it up, don't they, for the last one? Yeah. The band start playing Entrance to the Gladiators by Fuchik, which is best known as the circus music. Why not? What is this final event called? This is the Great Tunnel Walk, <laughs> where the children all line up along the tracks and they have to speed walk, do that weird wiggly speed walking, through a three-mile tunnel. Three miles. In the dark. Of course... They send in a train. Yes, either they send in a train or a train just naturally comes. Right. Well, there, there would this event wouldn't be any fun if no trains turned up. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering how far into their three-mile walk the the train arrived. So you see, like dozens and dozens of these children speed walking into the tunnel, and then Silently. the train goes through. No one says a word. They all just go in. And then you see the the surviving stragglers, covered in blood and staggering out to the other end of the tunnel, looking absolutely traumatised. And someone's collecting their names for the, the prizes. I think about four children came out. Give me a name. Gary Collins. And yours? Peter Bradbury. 
your name, dear? Sharon Clark. Well done, you three. And the rest are stretched out and just laid along the tracks. Yes, they go in and pull out an amazing number of bodies and just line them up. Lots and lots of blonde children. They're all blonde. Mm-hmm. They're all white. Yeah. It's like, it's like Village of the Damned. I think there was one child of colour, maybe two. Yeah, there was a girl. But yes, just all these little toe-headed children <laughs> of varying uh, skills at playing dead. Some of them were... Uh, wiggling about a bit. Yeah, I mean, those train tracks will be quite cold. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's a grim image, isn't it? These corpses lying lined up along the tracks. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, you can't help but think of photos of, you know, something along the lines of a genocidal event. World War One casualties or that kind of thing. Too many bodies coming out of this fantasy and cutting back to this kid who's imagined all this, I expected him to say, you know, no, on second thought, let's not go to Camelot. <laughs> <laughs> Tis a silly place. Yeah, I. you don't really get a sense of whether he ended up thinking it was a good idea or not, but you've got that disembodied voice of the, the stern figure at school saying, anyone who thinks playing on the tracks is is a fun time, I like, I dare you to stand up, which is just... Not how you get children to think about something productively. Intimidate you into uh, singling yourself out. All bellowing and no advice, essentially. We've got a lot of parenting advice, I notice. Or I do, anyway. <laughs> this is not how it's done. <laughs> yeah, that one, I think, was less detailed than Apache's. They weren't the characters, and it took me a shorter time to watch because I didn't spend most of it trying to work out where their location was. That one was in um, Hertfordshire, I think. They're all school children from Hertfordshire. Let's call for acting talents. Yeah, so what did you think? Uh, I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't, it's sort of haunting, but also... it's They're very amusing films, really. I'm curious whether they would work or not, or if they would just traumatise kids of that age. I certainly have heard that children did find Apaches traumatising. I think probably few children saw the finishing line because it was banned quite quickly, I would imagine. I think I would have found it quite exciting at the time, possibly. <laughs> I don't really know. Thrilling. Yeah. I guess it depends on the on the child. You know, some of them might think, oh, I better be careful. And then other kids probably thought like, well, I would never be dumb enough to do any of that stuff. I tended not to trespass on farms just through not wanting to get told off, just a phobia of getting told off. Other of my friends who will remain nameless, uh, but Peter and Mark um, tended to trespass quite quite happily onto farms and you know the, the farmer would come and they'd the stories of them hiding at the top of the huge stacks of bales from the farmer and the farmer they'd be there with his shotgun looking around for them and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. exactly the kind of adventures i was very glad not to have been involved in but very happy to hear about afterwards i think i think along those same lines i was uh focused on uh avoiding the greatest danger of all which is confrontation yes it's terrifying when you get yelled at isn't it yeah i think we we both have a phobia of getting into trouble mm, the one thing that can't really hurt you <laughs> <laughs> it's relatively easy to avoid falling into a slurry pit just don't fall into the slurry pit just stay out of the way of the slurry pit don't go near the slurry pit but getting told off can be a bit more random it can follow you yeah it sticks in your brain forever sometimes 
<laughs> still, still moments that I don't like thinking about. I think they're more likely to stay with you because they're artistic rather than... Yeah, I don't know. I think when we were... Someone would come in to talk to us or we'd be shown these, you know, just blunt sort of OSHA style videos of like, here's a here's 15 ways you can die. We'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we're less inclined to listen than if we were shown something that seems fun and turns out to be haunting. Yeah, I suppose the idea of it is making it watchable, which hadn't occurred to me, but I think you're right. It's They've deliberately made it watchable so that kids wouldn't get bored. Oh, I did also send you as a bonus thing. <laughs> yeah. As a little treat... Uh, a very notorious advert for British pork. This was the most alarming of the three things you <laughs> Yes, this is the one that's not meant to be alarming. It's terrifying. Isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I've never felt so attacked. <laughs> yeah, I'm presuming the man in it is supposed to be just sort of like a good gritty down-to-earth no-nonsense character you know good salt of the earth working class guy with his family uh-huh. but he's so threatening he is his his face is pointed downwards but the, just the eye contact is so extreme it's the kubrick stare isn't it the face pointed yeah. downwards but the eyes looking up and and the kind of shadowy camera work as well he's not brightly lit yeah it's just all dark and murky and He's the only one talking to you. Like he's he's standing at the head of his family table for Sunday dinner, and everyone else is just in there, immersed in the scene. His wife and his kids and his parents looking slightly nervous. Yeah, I mean, w- living with that man, absolutely. <laughs> and he's just going on and on about how we've got enough. We've got enough to eat. Arthur's got enough. And what what is he saying about his wife? She's got what it takes. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's got what it takes, my wife. Like, oh, God, has she? Oh, no. <laughs> and what she's got is pork. Roast pork. <laughs> yes, she's got roast pork. Yeah, she's got what it, she's got what it takes, my wife. It can have many, many connotations and few of and them. he are... says that twice. He starts with that and he ends with that. He's like, stop telling me about your wife. Got what it takes, my wife. Got friends round. Got roast pork for lunch. Plenty of taste, British folk. Real value for money. Fred's got plenty. Arthur's got plenty. We've all got plenty. Plenty to go round. My wife's got what it takes. British pork. What's it got? It's got the lot. Got pork for lunch on Sunday? It's very, you're not from around here kind of vibe, isn't it? It's like you're lost in this village and you've knocked on his door for directions and suddenly you're in his house. And am I a hostage now? Are you going to try and kill me if I leave? It's it's the scariest commercial I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I think there's there's this kind of legendary status that gets applied to commercials that miss. I think uh, the most notorious one that I can think of uh, American commercials for Folgers Coffee. Have you seen this? I don't think so. I think it's from maybe the late 90s or early 2000s. This young man has come back to his family home for Christmas and there's this girl there who greets him and she's the only one who's awake and they have this very like uh, intimate, like emotionally intimate moment together and 
like she puts a bow on him and she says, well, you're my present this year. And it's there's this like tension between them. Write you something from far away. <laughs> really? Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? You're my present this year. And they're brother and sister. <laughs> Oh, no. And then the parents come downstairs and they're like, our son's home. That's a twist I didn't need. Like, she's a teenager and he's probably like early 20s, come back from college. But it just doesn't, it's emotionally murky and it just seems like they just really want to go at each other. <laughs> and it it wasn't, you can tell that they just didn't think of it. And when they were shooting it, it just, they probably, no one there could see it. And I don't even know if they saw it when they were editing it or if they're all just like, well, we know the script. And, oh, wasn't it sweet? They just didn't realise how it was coming across. I think the worst advert I've ever seen is also an American advert, but it was shown here in cinemas. And it was the KFC Phantom Menace tie-in advert. (laughs) And I have no idea what the people who made it were thinking because it's catastrophically... Because most bad adverts either don't work because the humour doesn't work or you forget what the product is. Yeah. But this one makes KFC look really, really bad. Oh, no. So the the premise of it is this big outdoor assembly of all the KFC employees in their uniforms. And there's a man on stage and a big screen. And he's talking about that they're going to tie in a promotion with the the release of The Phantom Menace. This is 1999, this advert. And then he's talking to the uh, employees about how they should react to the different characters so Darth Maul comes up and they all go boo and then uh, what's his Anakin comes up and they all go yay and then uh, Natalie Portman comes up and they all wolf whistle her oh great (laughs) so that for a starter is just it just doesn't work at all and then even worse the image of the colonel comes up Colonel Sanders and they all bow and prostrate themselves in front of him oh dear (laughs) So it seems like KFC are brainwashing their employees into some weird, creepy cult. Ready, everybody? Anakin Skywalker. Queen Amidala. Darth Maul. You people are really coming along. The Star Wars Episode 1 experts are at KFC. It's really worth looking at. I I recommend people look it up online because it's really odd and completely misguided and doesn't work on any level at all. It's so clunky. Really clumsy, yeah. And it's kind of, it's sort of jaw-dropping. It's almost like that bit, the bit in the producers when they're staging the musical and you pan across the audience and all their their mouths are wide open. It's kind of like that. And, And I just can't work out what they were going for. There was a recent one with... Johnny Depp. It's probably still current, a cinema advert with Johnny Depp. I think it's for a fragrance, but it's the most <laughs> self-consciously cheesy thing I've ever seen. Sauvage. Is it Sauvage? The one where he's like playing an electric, an electric guitar and wolves come. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of Native American theme stuff. Sort of, sort of pretty tone deaf, I would say. Yeah, but I also think that that kind of hyper macho image is so 80s it's just like you know the the rebel bad boy with the electric guitar and then there's wolves i mean 
<laughs> that's so unnuanced. And... I was just like, is this really what you want me to think about when I smell this scent? And we don't really think of masculinity like that anymore. That's a very 80s way of looking at masculinity. It's like electric guitars and wolves. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're a bit more post-metrosexual now that, we're, that I think generally that's not how masculinity is sold. So it looks, it just seems really, real, really quaintly old fashioned. He's got, he's got pork for Sunday dinner. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Johnny's got plenty. <laughs> exactly. They've got what it takes. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it's probably time to wrap this up. Well, now that we're properly uncomfortable. Yeah, we've, we've made ourselves really uncomfortable, so it's time to finish this podcast. And hopefully you're uncomfortable too. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on to um, RetroTube. Thank it's, you It's been that. a delight. It has been very fun. Mm. We've learned how to stay safe. Often when I listen to podcasts, when they introduce what the guest does at the start of the podcast, I then don't want to scroll all the way back to the start to remind myself of what they do so let's remind people of the devil's work podcast uh that could be found on as they say uh your podcatcher of choice um i usually listen to things on spotify and we're on there and on instagram and facebook and all those things on tiktok just look for the devil's work podcast uh-huh. and what's your most recent episode and what, what do you have coming up uh, we're wrapping up. We just did Park Chan Wook's uh, Vengeance trilogy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and Old Boy is out. And the next thing to drop will be Lady Vengeance. We're very close to the end of the year, so then we've got a few other films after that. But uh, we're almost to something like forty episodes now. Wow! It's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's very um, rude, I would say. <laughs> Rude but fun. Thank you, Evelyn Mars. And uh, thank you for listening. And that was RetroTube. I don't have a a good way of ending these, so cheerio. (laughs) Bye. Hooray. Hooray. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazolowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.